Heavenly Father, we thank you as we uh, sit before you tonight that you're the God who knows uh, the hairs on our heads. You know all the days of our lives. You know even in these moments the things that concern us, weigh us down, distress us. You know our sins. You know our need for your word. And so we pray that you would open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake, his glory, his honor. Amen. Well, um, if you're at our um, prayer meeting on uh, Wednesday night, we prayed for Muriel. But we also looked uh, briefly at the account of Saul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. And the man who became the Apostle Paul, he was a man who was full of passion. All through his life, Saul had been a deeply zealous man. That zeal had been misplaced. As he fell to the ground, as he was temporarily blinded, as he was totally undone and broken by God, he had his life turned upside down. He finally started to see. From that moment, Paul's zeal was redirected. And it was redirected at one aim, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. His great longing was that men and women, boys and girls, would encounter the one that he had met on the road to Damascus. His desire was that they would have the kind of life-changing experience that he had. And this led him to boldly go where no man had gone before, even to Thessalonica. He was willing to take the gospel to places like that. This evening we're beginning a new sermon series in First Thessalonians, but we're starting this week in Acts 17. I want to set the scene tonight. I want to show you how the church in this city began. And I don't want to do that just because the geography, the history is interesting, and I like that kind of thing. I, I hope that it will help us get into the letter. I want to do it because, as well, it teaches us this passage about the power of the gospel. And I think reading these verses, reading Acts 17, 1 to 9, they're like taking a trip to a maternity ward. Because what they do for us tonight is they describe the birth of the church in Thessalonica. I've been present at two births. They are painful for the mother. They are sudden. They are dramatic experiences, aren't they? And as we look at this passage together, as we see this church being born, there's three things uh, I want to highlight, three themes that I think are in this passage. As we look at these verses first, notice the scriptures that form it. As we see this church being born, notice the scriptures that form it. Now, before we look at these verses, I want you to come with me to the very beginning of Acts. Come back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The Lord Jesus is about to return to heaven. The disciples are perplexed. Look at their question in verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Look at the answer Jesus gives in verse 7. 
It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In many ways, that verse, verse 8, is like the theme tune of the book of Acts. As we read it, as we read Acts, we see that word, that promise of Jesus come true from Pentecost onwards. The gospel starts to spread. And by chapter 17, it's come to Thessalonica. As we turn back to our chapter this evening, I wonder if you can see in chapter 17, the beginning of it, can you see Paul's approach? Where does Paul go and what does Paul do? He goes to the synagogue and he starts to preach. This was his custom, verse 2 tells us. Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures. And in many ways, this made absolute sense. I wonder if you can see how it kind of mirrors what we read in chapter 1, verse Eight, just as the whole church begins in Jerusalem and then spreads out, Paul begins in the place in Thessalonica where there would have been the most familiarity with his message. These people had some of the categories to understand what he was about to tell them. They knew of God. They knew of his covenants. They knew the scriptures. Look at the verbs Paul uses to, or that are used by Luke to describe what Paul did. He reasons, he explains, he proves, he proclaims. And who is his focus? This Jesus, Paul says, whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So Paul was coming to these people and he was telling them that the scriptures they claim to know and love, the scriptures they'd studied since childhood, they pointed to that very person, Jesus. He had met on the road to Damascus. Notice what Paul spells out about Jesus. He says it was necessary that he suffer, but also that he rise from the dead. Now, I don't know about you. I wonder if we always or often think of both of those things as being in the Old Testament. We're used to passages like Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, that speak of the suffering, the death of Jesus the Messiah, But there are also plenty passages in the Old Testament, aren't they, that speak of the fact that the Messiah would rise. Psalm 16 is one example. You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead or let your faithful ones see decay. No doubt Paul must have talked about that psalm in the synagogue. What he was doing was exactly what Jesus had done with the two individuals on the road to Emmaus. Luke tells us that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Friends, what's the application of this? I think one of the applications is that Jesus is who the Old Testament is all about. Jesus is the one the whole Old Testament points to. If we read the Old Testament, if we miss Jesus, if we miss his suffering, if we miss his resurrection, we've missed everything. And it was teaching like this that helped to birth the church in Thessalonica. Church in Thessalonica, here's how it didn't begin. 
Church in Thessalonica didn't begin because Paul walked into that town and had a magnetic personality. Church in Thessalonica didn't begin because Paul was a really impressive preacher or a really strong leader. It didn't begin because Paul had a great personal vision. Today, I think these are things that you and I can be very tempted to put our confidence in as Christians. We can think, if we just get the right leader, if we just have the right strategy, then God, well, God really should bless our efforts. God should get on board with our agenda. The church in Thessalonica began in a different way. God who spoke creation into being, he spoke into this city. He used the faithful preaching of God's word to bring you life. This is the way God always works in the world. Looked at uh, Isaiah 49 last Sunday night. In chapter 55, God's word is compared to rain, to snow that falls from heaven. God says, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. Or listen to Martin Luther. Martin Luther writing about his experience of the Reformation. Listen to what he said. I simply taught and preached God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then when I slept or drank Wittenberg beer, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word of God did it all. I think, friends, tonight we need to have confidence in the Word of God. It is alive. It is living. It is active. It is powerful. And if you have, if you have a gospel you give to a friend, say a copy of Luke's gospel or Mark or something like that, if you give a friend that gospel, let me say this, so much more is going on in that moment than if you just gave them a novel, a novel that you've enjoyed. So much more is going on. There will be a response to that gospel, a different kind of response than they might have to the novel. We see this in verse 4 and verse 5. As the word goes out, some are persuaded, and yet some start to persecute. Some are persuaded, some start to persecute. That takes me to the second theme in this sermon tonight. As we see this church being born, we don't just see the scripture that forms it, we see, secondly, the suffering that threatens it. The suffering that threatens it. Now, in every sermon, there's details in a passage that we don't have time to go into. We could spend a lot of time tonight pointing out the diversity in this church, we see that in verse 4, as the gospel comes into this city, what does it do? It crosses natural divides of uh, gender and, and background. It came to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. The gospel still acts like that today in the world. We could spend time this evening talking about the importance of persuasion. It's a big theme in the book of Acts. Uh, we could maybe take encouragement tonight if our uh, conversion was not dramatic like the Apostle Paul's, if it came as we heard God's word, as we were persuaded by God's word. Persuasion is a big theme in Acts. These people seem to have heard 
this message from Paul and seem to have just said, well, this makes sense. Instead, what I want to focus on tonight is the opposition. There is no honeymoon period for this church. Almost immediately in this city, as the gospel is preached, a wall goes up. Almost immediately in the synagogue, there is a division. Some are persuaded, some start to persecute. This is something that the gospel always does today. I quoted Isaiah 55 earlier. God's word always does what God wants. And what seems to happen when God's word goes out is, here's how someone has put it, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. God's word is not a neutral word. God's word provokes a response. Friends, we need to realize that if we are sharing God's word, otherwise we'll be discouraged or we'll be tempted to compromise it. Look at verse 5 with me, and can you spot what I think is quite a surprising word? Can you see the word jealous? Luke tells us that what motivated so many of the Jews in Thessalonica was jealousy. Jealousy. In Acts 7, Stephen uses that same word to describe the the actions of Joseph's brothers as they sold him into slavery in Egypt. But what were they jealous of? I have to say that I don't really know. But jealousy is kind of like that, isn't it? Jealousy doesn't really make sense. And yet this jealousy, it causes them to act in a senseless way. I wonder if you can see just how disproportionate their response is. Here are people who turn on the very people who've come from a similar background religiously, culturally to them. They turn on these people because they view the scriptures they share in common in a different way now. Instead of debating with them, instead of arguing it out with them, they respond, Luke tells us, with violence. Violence. They take up wicked men. They form a mob. They put the city in uproar. It's crazy. I think it teaches us something this evening. We should never be surprised when a reasonable gospel, here's my sentence for this point, a reasonable gospel is met with an unreasonable response. A reasonable gospel is met with a totally unreasonable, totally disproportionate response. We should never be taken aback when the Jesus we love, the Jesus so full of kindness and grace, the one who is gentle and lowly in heart, when he is held up and some people get very angry, very quickly, even threaten violence. We should never be surprised when some of the most ardent opposition to the gospel comes from very religious people. We've seen that. We've seen that in Scotland in the last few years in a small way. That's often happens in situations like this. One person becomes a kind of scapegoat. That target is Jason. Luke tells us 
at the end of verse 5, that they seek to bring them to the angry crowd. Now, who are the them? I think it's probably most likely they're Paul and Silas, aren't they? Verse 10, they escape under the cover of darkness. They're like fugitives on the run. Verse 6, Luke says that when they can't be found, Jason and co, they're dragged out instead. And I think what is happening here in verse 6 is that civil authority and religious authority are joining hands in opposition to the Christian church. Civil authority and religious authority joining hands in opposition. We should never be surprised at that. This is what happens so often to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It still happens today. State power, religious power combine in opposition. Why do they do that? The end of verse 6. The end of verse 6, I think, gives us the answer. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. It's a wonderful phrase, isn't it? During the English Civil War, when Charles I, you knew you would get history referenced, didn't you? During the English Civil War, when Charles I was executed, everything seemed to change so fast at that time. That phrase... The world turned upside down. It seemed to sum up what everyone felt. One historian has used that uh, phrase as a title of a volume about that period. And I think the Jews in verse 6, they speak this way because they're afraid. This is what happens when people feel that others are breaking free from their control. People don't like it when a system they are invested in feels like it's fraying at the edges. The Jews recognized something of this. They recognized that the message of the gospel was a threat to them. It was countercultural. It was radical. It was revolutionary. It was disruptive. And so they start to talk as if these men are some civil, some political threat. But I think when they do that, all they're showing is that they've misunderstood the gospel Paul proclaimed. I don't see any evidence in this passage that this new church was setting out to cause problems in the city. And as God's people, you and I were called to follow Jesus, we're called to live at peace with our neighbors, we're called to honor those in authority. There's no sign I can see in this passage that these believers are unwilling to do those things. As Paul would tell them later in his letter, their goal should be to live a quiet life, to mind their own business, to work with their hands so they might win the respect of outsiders. So friends, tonight I wonder if there's a challenge for us here. Are you and I, are we willing as God's people, are we willing to be wronged? Are we willing to be misunderstood and maligned? Are we willing to have people say all kinds of unpleasant things about us just because we love the Lord Jesus Christ? We need to be willing to do that if we're going to follow him. It's not easy to do that. It's not easy in the office. It's not easy in the playground. And sometimes it's not easy even at the family dinner table. That's why we need each other. That's why we need to love and pray for each other as a church family. It will often be this way for God's people. 
And how could it not be this way? We follow a Savior who experienced the same thing. Even when we seek to be faithful, even when you and I pose no real threat to the culture around us, there will often be times when we as Christians were viewed with suspicion. A reasonable gospel will be met with an unreasonable response. So as this church began, we don't, there's a third thing I want us to see tonight. As this church began, we don't just see the scripture that formed it, the suffering, that kind of marked it, branded it from the very beginning. We see the third thing. We see the sovereign who holds it, the sovereign who holds it. Now, you don't need uh, me to tell you that the royal family have been in the news quite a bit recently. Good, bad, and ugly. It's loomed large, hasn't it? The royal family in the public consciousness. There was uh, the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, wasn't there? And then her death. And then all kinds of things being spoken about openly. We need to pray for them, I think, don't we? One of the things that many people spoke about after the Queen had died was uh, her Christian faith. Even those who didn't share it recognized that it had been the deepest, the very deepest part of her life. It had impacted all she did. She had discovered there was another king another king called Jesus. She'd come to realize that she owed her allegiance to him. This is what the Thessalonians had discovered too, as they heard Paul speak from the Old Testament scriptures, the Lord Jesus Christ. He became real to them. They recognized that he was the king of kings, the Lord of lords. They began to see that he had brought them into it his realm. They were subjects of Jesus. He had all authority in heaven and on earth. And even though they faced opposition, they were held by him. And to borrow from their opponents, one of the things they saw is that his kingdom actually does turn ideas about kingship on their head. His kingdom really does come and does turn the world upside down. Because the kingdom of Jesus is not of this world. The kingdom of Jesus is an upside down kingdom. Jesus said to two of his disciples who craved a throne, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the king who served. Jesus is the king who washed his disciples' feet. Jesus washed the feet of a man who committed treason against him. Jesus is the king who was willing to go to the cross. He paid the penalty our sins deserve. This is what draws people to Jesus so often. 
Jesus is a ruler, and yet Jesus never, ever uses his rule to harm other people, harm his subjects. He never abuses his power. He never manipulates people. Instead, Jesus always comes and blesses people. He blesses his followers, his subjects. His kingdom is a different kind of kingdom altogether. And that means that subjects of his kingdom are to be different too. Their lives are to be paradoxical lives. Here's how someone has put it. Lord, let me learn that the way down is the way up. That in your kingdom to be low is to be high. Let me learn that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that the valley is the place of vision. That is not the way our world works, is it? Those are not the kind of values that we see in our society. Appreciate it. And yet they are the values of Jesus, aren't they? A broken heart, a repenting soul, a cross before a crown. These are the marks of people who belong to Jesus, the King. This is the kind of life that he calls us to if we're part of his kingdom tonight. If you heard those words, if you hear these things and you you know that that is the kind of life God wants for you. Friends, even if you struggle to live like that, we'll be encouraged. God is at work already in you. He has, Paul says, delivered us from the dominion of darkness. He has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. Even tonight, we have the forgiveness of sins. So First Thessalonians, I think, it's, a, it's going to be a, a letter for us that will be full of encouragement. It calls us to keep on encouraging each other. You and I, we need encouragement in the Christian life. We need each other. So let me give you some homework. Let me encourage you to do two things before next Sunday. Let me encourage you to read First Thessalonians. Maybe read it in one go or read a chapter a day. And let me encourage you to pray that God would use this letter, use this church in Thessalonica to help make us the people he's called us to be. Jesus speaks and a church is born. Jesus calls us tonight to join in being willing to suffer for his sake. And he is the king. He's the king who's come and turned whole world upside down and he will reign he will rule forever and ever well let's pray together Jesus said I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it Paul tells the church in Colossae all over the world This gospel is 
bearing fruit. Heavenly Father, how we thank you. Thank you for that wonderful truth that you're building your church. Thank you that you have even brought into that church people like us. Thank you for the privilege, the honor, the great honor of belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is our king tonight. And we thank you that he was willing to suffer for us. Help us follow in his footsteps as your people. And we pray that this letter, as we look at it, would encourage us and help us. We ask it all in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. Well, we're going to close our service this evening singing again. It's great. Him of church arise, put your armor on, hear the call of Christ, our captain. For now the weak can say that they are strong in the strength that God has given. Let's stand, praise God together.